Welcome back to St. Gabriel Catholic Radio's special presentation of the talks from the 2021 Columbus Catholic Men's Conference. Right now, we're going to hear Devin Schott's second talk, and then Devin will be followed by Father Donald Calloway and Bishop Robert J. Brennan. Here's Devin Schott. Hey guys, welcome back to our second talk. St. John Vianney, when he was preparing for his ordination, he said to his formation director, he said, you know, Samson used the jawbone of an ass to slay a thousand Philistines. And then he said, imagine what you can do with an entire ass. <laughs> well, I think that speaks for every one of us. But St. John Vianney was talking about complete investment. And that's what we need to be, completely invested, all in, in the mission of God. So our identity needs to lead to our destiny. Our identity leads to our mission. Silence leads to obedience. But it demands that we be all in. And so, you know, it reminds me of the parable of the talents. You know, we all know the story of the parable of the talents. There's a, a, a steward of the house, a master, and he's going on a long extended journey. And so he summons three of his servants. And to one, he gives five talents, to a second, two talents, and to a third servant, one talent, each according to their ability. And then he leaves. And after some time, he comes back to settle accounts. And so the first servant steps forward and says, Master, you gave me five talents. I invested those five talents. I I got five more. And so here they are. And the master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in small matters. I'm going to give you greater responsibilities. Come share your master's joy. The second, the same. He says, you gave me two talents. I invested it. And here they are. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in small matters. Now I'm going to give you greater responsibilities. Come share your master's joy. And then there's the, the third servant, known as the wicked, lazy servant. And he comes forward and he says, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, that you gather where you don't plant, you take where you don't give. And so I was afraid. And so I buried the talent, but here it is back. And the master says, so you knew I was a harsh man. Why didn't you just put the talent in the bank so it could accrue some interest? And he says, take that talent from the one, give it to the one with 10, and take this useless, wicked, lazy servant and cast him out in the darkness where there's wailing and grinding of teeth. And now, when I used to hear that parable, I would think, man, the master was having a bad day. I mean, did he just wake up from a nap or was he having low blood sugar? I mean, what's going on there? But when we listen to the servant's words, the wicked, lazy servant, he says, Master, you're a harsh man. Okay, that's, that's the first sign. And then he says, you take where you don't give. So, and he said, and the third thing he says, I was afraid. Now, is that all true? Because to the first servant, he gives five talents. To the one, two talents. And if we know anything about what a talent was, a talent was a way to, a way to measure gold and silver coins. And so, um, a talent was worth about 6,000 denarius, a Roman soldier's daily wage. And so if you calculate that out into U.S. dollars, it's about 19 years worth of wages. One talent is, it's about a million dollars. So to the first servant, he gave about $5 million. Second, $2 million. And to the third, $1 million. All for doing nothing, which says that the master's incredibly generous. He's not shrewd. He's not miserly. So what's the point of the whole parable? The point is, is that our perception of God determines the trajectory of our lives. Who we think God is, how we see God, will actually determine how we are. If we think that God is a miser and that God is shrewd, we're going to be like that. We're going to be tight with our money. And in fact, it's going to lead to disobedience. 
But if we think that God is generous, it's going to lead us to obedience. It's going to lead us to heroic sacrifice. And this is precisely what happened with Adam and Eve, our first parents. The Catholic Catechism tells us that they, the first sin was they allowed their trust in the Father to die in their hearts. They didn't believe the Father to be generous. And therefore, it led to an act of grasping, of disobedience. Whereas Jesus Christ in the garden, he says, Father, I believe that you can do all things. You're a generous, you're a generous Father. And therefore, what does Jesus do? Because he knows that his Father is generous, he's willing to lay down his life. And this is very interesting. And this is something we all need to kind of grasp here, understand, is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about when the Son of Man is lifted up. And that Greek word for lifted up is hypsao. And hypsao has two meanings. One, it means to be lifted up as an execution, crucified, or to be lifted up to be glorified. But Jesus uses the term hypsao interchangeably, which means to him that his glory is synonymous with his crucifixion. His crucifixion is his glorification. His ability to give himself away for mankind is his glory, which helps us to understand what our mission is as men. Our mission as men is to give ourselves away in self-sacrificial love, to be hipsao, to be lifted up. That's our whole goal. So in the first talk, we were trying to ask, we probed the question, I guess, of who are you? What's your identity? because your identity leads to your destiny. In this talk, we're gonna be talking about where are you? What's your position in God's plan? That from that position determines your mission. Where are you? What, what, is that, what is that position that you have in God's plan? So silence and obedience are two sides of the same coin, right? Silence leads to obedience. And obedience is proof that we've listened in the silence. In fact, the word obedience in the Latin comes from the two Latin words ob adire, which means toward the voice. So in order to be obedient, we have to first listen to God. And so in order to carry out our mission, we have to enter into prayer, into silence. And that obedience is proof that we've listened and that we've prayed. Now, Adam, the first man, the context of his mission was in a garden. You remember, Adam was given the context to protect and keep the garden. Now the question is, where was Adam created? And I think most of us think that Adam was created in the garden. Well, that's not quite right. It says in the scripture that Adam was created outside of the garden. It says this twice in Genesis within like, I don't know, eight or 10 verses. And then he was placed in the garden. So what's going on there? You see, Adam was created in the hostile or the unknown, the undiscovered, the uncharted wilderness in the wild. And then God then places him in the garden. And in Hebrew literature, the word garden often represented or symbolized woman's interiority, her mystery. In fact, in Song of Songs, you are a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed, my sister, my bride. And so the garden symbolizes woman, her mystery, her life-giving quality, the domestic life. And Adam, though, wasn't created in the garden, but then God places him in the garden. What's going on here? What this means is that Adam and all men innate to us were hardwired for the hostile outside competitive world. We're made for competition, challenge, adventure, battle. 
but then we're placed in the garden, which means we're called to cultivate the garden, to protect it, to keep it. And in fact, Adam was given the commands to till and to keep the garden. And in the, in the Hebrew, that means that till is avad and keep is shemar, which literally means to cherish and to protect. So Adam is given the commands to cherish and protect the garden. But to protect means that there's an enemy that's existing. So that's a warning sign. The second thing that Adam is told is that he's not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, but the question is, is where was Eve when all these commands were given? She didn't even exist. You see, here's the point. God created Adam to stand on the horizon between the exterior, hostile, competitive, challenging world and the garden. And he was called to harmonize these two worlds. He's called to hunt and mine and gather the resources of the exterior world and bring them into the domestic world. And to, but at the same time, to keep the devil, the evil one, out. That's what, we're, that's what he was called to do, and that's what we're all called to do, okay? So every man, like Adam, is called to stand on the horizon between the exterior, hostile world and the garden, and to integrate the two. So Adam was given the task to keep the serpent at bay, but Adam fails, he falls. And the first time that God asks mankind a question is after this fall, and he doesn't ask the woman who sinned first, but he asked the man who he created first, and he says, where are you? God wasn't interested in Adam's geographical location. God's interested in awakening Adam to his spiritual location, that he was called to be a kustos, that's Latin for guardian. He was called to be a guardian of the garden, of woman and the child, of the domestic life. But he failed. And, and that's the question that God is asking each and every one of us today. He's saying, you gotta find your identity, who you are, who I created you to be, but your mission, you gotta know where you are. Where are you? Are you a kustos? Are you a guardian of the garden of woman and the child? Okay, and so in the game of football, you know, there's the, the center who snaps the ball to the quarterback. Well, his job is to snap the ball to the quarterback, but also to protect the quarterback, to give the quarterback enough time to get the ball downfield to the receiver to score the touchdown. Well, we're like that center in the fact that we're called to keep Satan at bay. We're called to give our wives and our children enough space, enough grace to get upfield to the fatherland, to heaven, so that they can be saved. That's our job as men, is to be that front lineman, if you will, to protect the family, to be the kustos, to be the guardian. Notice that the temptation didn't come directly to Adam, that the serpent didn't directly approach Adam because most likely Adam would have seen it as a temptation and he would have avoided it. He would have overcome it, even if it meant to lay down his life. However, when the temptation came through Eve, Adam was compromised because he didn't want his relationship with Eve to be compromised. And this is what happens to so many of us as men. We can tend to avoid temptation or overcome it, but when it comes to our wives or when it comes to women, we're more tempted than ever. And in fact, we don't want to compromise the relationship, so we succumb. Think of contraception, you know, that's one of the areas in which we cave sexually, you know, with our wives often. But the point is, is you look at like Adam with Eve or Abraham with Hagar or even Lot with his daughters or Samson and Delilah, temptation often comes through woman. And so this is the point. 
men are fundamentally different than women. Even though we're made of the same stuff, body and soul, a man's body indicates that his spiritual nature, his spirit is different than woman. And what does that mean? You know, our bodies, especially our loins, are different than women. And so what that means is, is that stamped right there in their bodies is this spiritual reality that we're called to set the pace of self-giving love. We're called to initiate self-sacrificial love. That's what Adam was supposed to do, but he didn't. And so like in dancing, a man is supposed to take the first step, set in motion. It doesn't mean that he's a better dancer than his wife. It just means that he's called to set that dance in motion. In sexual intercourse, a man must penetrate. He must initiate or there's no communion and there's no life. And and so that's the idea here is that we're called to set the pace of self-giving love. And so Eve, she was longing for the sacrificial love of Adam. She wanted Adam to protect her from the serpent. But Adam didn't. And because of that, she probably questioned whether or not Adam really loved her. And therefore, she sought some kind of disordered affirmation. And so she seduced Adam and she manipulated him. Now, here's the problem. This is a dynamic for each and every one of us, is that women, daughters of Eve to this day, they long for the sacrificial love of the new Adam, Jesus Christ, through us. But when they don't get that, They long for some type of affirmation, so they're willing to resort to seducing us, manipulating us, whatever, to get some kind of disordered affirmation so that they can feel loved, even if it's a disordered way. But here's the problem. We men were all too comfortable with staying in that dynamic. And if you believe the stats, some 65% of men, two-thirds of men, use pornography regularly. I mean... We are boys trapped in men's bodies, you know? And that's the whole thing. Lust restrains men in boyhood. A friend of mine, he was turning 40 and we were having a phone conversation. I was wishing him a happy birthday and I was kind of joking around with him about how he's wearing the pens now and suspenders and all that. And then he kind of broke in and he said, you know, even though I'm turning 40, I still feel like a boy. And that raised the alarm bell in my head. And I was like, wait a minute, can I ask you a question? Are you bound by lust? I mean, are you addicted to lust? And he said, this is what's killing me. I'm addicted to pornography and my wife knows, you know, and I, I can't stop. And see, love restrains us in boyhood. Love attempts to divorce love from sacrifice. It wants to keep us from becoming sacrificial men. And here's the deal. We don't respect any man who hasn't sacrificed. All men suffer, but few men sacrifice. And it's the man who suffers, hipsao, is lifted up in his sacrifice, who attracts all men to himself. You know, that's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. For me personally, I remember when my wife and I were first married, I I think I I was bound by lust, unfortunately. I, I objectified her. And it really came to a head when... Our daughter, Anna Marie, was born and my wife, it was an emergency C-section and she was cut multiple ways and the, her uterus was literally clamping down and crushing Anna Marie. And Kim's obese after the surgery said, you can't get pregnant for one and a half, two years. And so that meant hands off, you know, and that was hard and very difficult. And in fact, it put a lot of strain on a relationship, a lot of duress on a relationship. And that one and a half years turned into two years, and that two years turned into two and a half years, two and a half years 
turned into three years. And I remember saying, hey, we need to go to counseling. We got to get over this fear thing. And, and she didn't really think it was necessary. And so finally, you know, somewhere after three and a half years, I'd had it. And so she took our three daughters at the time. We have five now. And she took the three daughters of mine, uh, ours, to the grocery store. And I packed my bags. And I decided I was going to leave and go over to a friend's house. And that was it. I'd had enough. But she forgot something. And she came back early, just as I was walking out the front door. And she asked me, what are you doing? I said, I'm leaving. I can't take this anymore. Okay, she said, I, I, I want to talk to a priest. Let's have a priest over. So that night we had our parish priest over. We explained to him our situation. And he said, oh, this is easy. You've already given God three children. And he's very pleased with that. And Humanae Vitae makes a provision that you can use contraception. And my wife and I looked at each other and we, we knew that wasn't right. And so the first time in like three years, we haven't been able to disagree or agree on anything. This is the first time in three years we're able to agree. You we're not gonna do that. And I think because we listened, Abba Dure, and we acted in obedience, we weren't gonna do that. A week later, a guy I didn't know, I was walking into church and he gives me these tapes on the theology of the body. And I started listening to them. And I discovered that to be a man means to offer, as St. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, offer your bodies as a holy and living sacrifice unto the Lord. And I recognized that meant that I needed to offer up my lusts or objectify my wife. I need to offer up my body literally for my wife on the altar of our bed. You know, and, and this became my prayer. I'd lay down, but this is my body given for you. And you know, I learned something very important with that. Never pray that prayer out loud in front of your wife. No, but the point is, is, is that because I began to lay down my body literally for my wife and overcome lust in the heart, what was, what was so amazing was to see my wife respond to that. And now we just celebrated our 25th anniversary just a couple months ago, and we're more happy than ever. And, and that's the amazing thing about when we step up to be sacrificial men, women respond to that sacrificial love of the new Adam, which they desire. But all too often, they get the love of the old Adam. And so, you know, like we look at Abraham. Abraham's a great example. He, he was tested in the area of faith. God gave him a promise that he would have an heir from the fruit of his loins. And, but, but what happened, his name meant great father, and yet he had no children. Sarah was barren. Talk about a problem. And so Sarah was getting tired of this promise not being fulfilled. And so she sought a human solution to a divine problem. And so she said, Abraham, take my slave woman, Hagar, and have intercourse with her, and then I'll have an heir through Hagar. Well, Hagar became pregnant by Abraham, and Hagar then began to look on Sarah with contempt. And then Sarah began to look on Abraham with contempt. And then Abraham finally gave in and said, look, Sarah, you can do whatever you want to Hagar. So Sarah started abusing Hagar, and then Hagar fled. And so do you see what happens here? Lust breeds disobedience. And then that disobedience breeds division. It happens every time. And so whatever form of lust we're committing, pornography, affairs, whatever it is, it's going to breed disobedience. And that disobedience breeds division. But we're called to be men of communion. And, and, and mark this. This is very important. Hagar, her name means to flee. Abraham, by having intercourse with Sarah, he was actually fleeing God's will. Okay? And whenever we indulge lust, whenever we, whenever we give up on our marital vows, 
we're actually fleeing from our vocational path, which is where we hear the voice. That's vocation comes from the Latin word vox, which is voice. And so our identification leads to our destination, which is glorification, deification, but it comes by means of the path of our vocation. And when we flee from the path of our vocation, we can no longer hear the voice of God and his call to greatness. Okay? So we need to ask ourselves, am I a bike with training wheels? Or am I an ATV, you know, a four-wheeler? Or am I an 18-wheeler, you know, a semi? Um, because, because here's why. These are the th- three stages of, of manhood, you know, the masculine journey. There's the boy, the guy with the training wheels. The boy is self-preoccupied. It's all about himself. He depends on other people to take care of him. He's afraid to suffer, and he will do anything to avoid it at all costs. That's the boy. He's very selfish. So he's like the, the guy with the, the bike with the training wheels. And then you get the man. The man begins to take responsibility for himself. He pays his bills. He pays his rent. He pays his car payment. He gets educated. He gets a job. He's willing to join the military or a corporation and participate. But here's the key. He's willing to suffer and take responsibility for himself in order to exalt himself. That's the man. That's the ATV, the four-wheeler, a little bit of freedom, if you will. But the spiritual father, the third stage of the masculine journey, he's the one who takes responsibility not only for himself, but for the people around him. And so when we become fathers biologically, when we get married, uh, if we become a priest, or whether we care or care for other people as we're a single or a widower or whatever it is, what happens is our responsibilities multiply exponentially. And we're not only responsible for people's temporal welfare, but we're responsible for their spiritual welfare. And this is so important. And that's why we need the semi-trailer, because we're hauling everybody to heaven. We're, we're responsible, responsible for their sanctification and their salvation. So we, we're called to abide, not flee. Okay, like Hagar, flee. We're not called to flee our path of our vocation. We're called to remain. And Jesus says this in John 15. In fact, seven times Jesus pleads with the disciples in in John 15. He says, remain in me. And that Greek word remain, mene. He's really pleading with them, remain, stay with me. Why? Because it's going to get tough. You're going to want to flee. Suffering's going to enter your marriage. You're going to stop finding your wife attractive, or you're going to get bored, or you're going to fight, or there's going to be financial duress. Whatever it is, there's going to be a multitude of problems. But you're not to flee. You're called to remain because that's what a real man does. And notice that word remain is also abide, okay? Abide in the Greek, mene. And notice where else we hear that in John 6. John says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And this is so important because the key to remaining faithful in our marriages, the key to conquering lust, is the Eucharist. Why? Because in the Eucharist, we receive the real man, Jesus Christ, into ourselves, and we become like him. You are what you eat. You consume Jesus. You will become like Jesus because Jesus is consuming you, in a sense. You are becoming like him. And so, not only that, but the Eucharist becomes this accountability partner. So, my my recommendation is we should go to Mass as much as possible, if not daily. And the reason is, is because if I show up to Mass and I'm bound in lust, pornography, I'm having an affair... I go up for the blessing, and, and it's humiliating, but St. Peter says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and in due time, He will exalt you. And so the key is, God will recognize that humility, and He'll give you the grace to defeat this. But not only that, but once you start receiving, after going to confession, 
and getting becoming forgiven of your skins, God forgives you through the priest, then you can begin to receive the real man, Jesus Christ, his heavenly food into you, and you'll begin to conquer this, this vice. Because we have to give credit to the supernatural essence of Jesus Christ in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Okay, so this is all to say that we have to be guardians of the garden. And the best way to do it is to be like Jesus, the guardian garden, par excellence, by receiving his body and blood. Sister Lucia said the last battle will be over marriage and the family. And we're here. We're seeing it all over the place. The devil hates the family. He's seeking to malign and redefine it in all sorts of disordered ways. But you and I, as spiritual fathers, we're called to protect and defend the guardian of the, or the garden of the family. We're called to be guardians of the garden. And why is this important? Because who God is and what God does in eternity, He wants to reflect and reveal in our humanity. And so God is three distinct persons who give themselves to one another. So in fact, they are one in essence. And so you have three, the three attributes of the Trinity are distinction, unity, and fruitfulness. Three distinct persons, that, but yet they are one in essence unity and in that unity from that unity is life love bliss rapture ecstasy power and creativity that will never end and so god wants man to relive and reveal these trinitarian attributes so he creates creates man and woman complement complementary distinction male and female hetero not homo not same hetero distinct persons to call to be called together in communion a union, that one flesh union. And from that one flesh union, there is a third, a life. And that image is the Trinity. The devil hates this. And we as men, we're called to be guardians of the family. But what we have in our culture right now is Marxism. It's raging all around us. And Marxism, Karl Marx, basically called religion the opiate of the masses. And his goal was to remove the people from God and God from the people. And what Karl Marx couldn't really do, we basically achieved in America. Um, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, we moved from a single income family economy to a dual income family economy. And when that started happening, mom and dad were both outside the home. And then kids were on their own, raising themselves, or maybe being raised by daycares, or being raised by the state or the school system. And then in 1962, Prayer was banned from school. So school was becoming a hostile environment to Christianity, to Catholicism. And then not only that, but the late 1960s, radical feminism began to rise in the sexual revolution. And basically, radical feminism is just a, a outgrowth of Marxism. In fact, Kate Millett, one of the foundresses of now the New Organization of Women, she would begin her rallies with the following chant. She would say, why are we here today? to create the revolution. Notice that, the revolution, that's Marxism. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. How do we create the cultural revolution? By destroying the American family, the, the, the icon of the Trinity. How do we destroy the American family? By destroying the American patriarch. That's you and me, the father of the family, the spiritual father. How do we destroy the American patriarch? By destroying monogamy, by taking away his power, that's monogamy, his marriage, his wife. And how do we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, homosexuality, and the like. 
And that's where we're at today. In order for the cultural revolution of Marxism and radical feminism to occur, what has to happen? The American patriarch, the father of the family, has to be taken out. The strong man, as Jesus says in Mark 3, he must be bound because then you can plunder his house. That's the key. That's what, the, so the, the earthly father, the spiritual father, he has the job to be the custos, the guardian of the family. Now, on the solemnity of St. Joseph on March 19th, the opening antiphon is from Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And it says, Who is the faithful and wise steward that the master places over his house to give them bread in their due season? Well, that word for master of the house is a Greek word. It's oikodespates. It's highly significant because Jesus, our Lord, is the only one who uses it. And he uses it 10 times referring to himself, but twice to the father of the family. Oikodespates, pater familias, father of the family. And in that passage in Luke 12, the, the attributes of the oikodespates, the pater familias, the father of the family, are laid out. If, if the steward of the house knew when the thief was coming, surely he would protect it. So he's a protector. He protects his family from Satan. He gives them bread in due season. He's a provider. But not only that, he is wise and he's faithful. Therefore, he understands the commands of God and then he passes them on to his family. He's a priest. So therefore, we're the protector, we're the provider, and we're the priest. And this is how we become guardians of our domestic church. Okay, now, it's so important to realize that to be a priest means we offer sacrifice, the sacrifice of ourselves, okay? When the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. If we do not die to ourself, we'll remain alone. But if we do die to ourself, we'll have communion with those around us, and ultimately with God. So what does this mean? Well. You know, when my daughter, Anna Marie, she was about three years old, and we went to a birthday party. Now, she couldn't walk. She couldn't really talk. She couldn't sit up on her own. She couldn't even crawl. And my friend, his daughter, it was her first birthday, and it was time to open up the gifts. And so he called his daughter over, and she was crawling, and then she sat up, and then she did this Frankenstein-like walk to over to him, and everybody clapped. And we were also happy because it was the first time that she basically walked. And I had Anna Marie, my daughter, sitting Indian style, but she was braced between my legs so she wouldn't fall and tip over because she couldn't sit up on her own. Now I was clapping and smiling on the outside, but inside I was tortured because I was looking at this one-year-old realizing my daughter can't even crawl. So that night we got home and I laid my daughter down, Anna Marie, and I said, Anna Marie, you're going to crawl to Papa tonight. Tonight you're going to learn to crawl. And so I said, okay, crawl to Papa. Nothing happened. I said, all you have to do is lift your head. Come on, honey, lift your head and move one arm in front of the other. Nothing. And so the wheel started spinning. Will she ever walk? Will she ever talk? Will she ever go to prom? Will she ever ride a bike? Will she ever have a boyfriend? Will she ever get married and have children? Will she be able to draw? You know, and as the wheel spun, I began to become fearful. And I laid down beside her and I began to move her arms and her legs saying, see Anna Marie, this is how you crawl. This is how you do it. And then I just put my face in my hands and in a moment of hopelessness realizing that she's never going to crawl. And it was in that moment that this thought pierced my soul. And it was, see Devin, 
how you want your daughter to crawl, and you love her so much that you get beside her and even want to do it for her. But I love you and your daughter and all of my children so much that I not only want to get beside them, but in them, in order that I can help them not only crawl, but walk, not only walk, but run, not only run, but fly and soar with me. You see, that's what God does. God lowers himself. Jesus Christ, though he was God, he did not deem equality with God something to be clung to, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of slave, and he became obedient. Obedient unto death, death on a cross. And therefore God hypsaoed him, highly exalted his name above every other name. You notice Jesus had to get below us, in a sense, to lift us up to heaven. And that's what you and I, as spiritual fathers, were called to get below others and to serve them and to lift them up. And by lifting them up, we could get them to heaven. This is the, the task and the mission of every man. We're called to be that semi-trailer that hauls souls to heaven, to be that kustos, that guardian of the garden. So let us go home and let us be St. Joseph. Thank you, men. Well, guys, it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker. I had the privilege of interviewing Father Calloway. So this presentation of Fathers is going to be an interview. And Father Calloway, a lot of us know him now. He has a new best-selling book out, Consecration to St. Joseph. And we're so grateful that he took some time out of an incredibly busy speaking schedule uh, over the last year to spend some time with us and uh, to present to us some ideas and thoughts on this incredible saint, St. Joseph, and how we as men today can find inspiration in our life as fathers and husbands to live the way St. Joseph did. So enjoy this interview that I had recently with Father Donald Calloway. Well, Father Calloway, welcome to our 24th annual Catholic Men's Conference. We're so glad to have you. Oh, thank you so much, brother. It's good to be with you and all the other men uh it's an honor for me because we need each other in these difficult times and uh we especially need saint joseph right now more than we've ever needed him before let's just jump right in and talk about that what is it about this time and this saint that the church seems to be lifting him up for all of us right now yeah this is an extraordinary time of saint joseph uh you know in the last 150 years the church has really done more to uh, highlight St. Joseph than in the previous 1,800 years of the church. And I think, and many others do as well, that the reason for that is because right now we're experiencing a heightened attack on the family. Um, we know this. We, we see it almost daily in the media, how the, the, the family is just you know, seeking to be destroyed by the evil one. And even, you know, much of society wants to, to go at the family and get rid of it. And also, in addition to that, we're experiencing something today that I would call like an attack on authority or, or leadership, and especially in the role of the father, the role of the father in the family, the role of a father in a parish, you know, the role of a father in the diocese as, as a bishop. We're experiencing this on a heightened scale uh, in a way that we haven't before. And so if you think about that, uh, Sister Lucia dos Santos, if you remember her, she was the, the longest lived visionary of Fatima. She said at one point that the final battle between good and evil 
would be fought over marriage and the family. And it's definitely being played out today. And, and, you know, right now we've got cultures that are even redefining marriage. So people are saying you can get married to whoever you want. And there's so much confusion today with gender, you know, ideology and all the stuff going on. So what better person to look to when the family is being attacked, when leadership is being attacked, than St. Joseph? He was the head of the holy family. God gave him great responsibility to take care of, of Jesus and Mary. And so we today, if we want to kind of shore things up and get back to the basics, the, the fundamentals, we need to look to St. Joseph uh, because he may have been silent, but he was strong. You know, and, and looking to him, I think that we're going to be able to correct a lot of the wrongs that are happening today, both in society. You know, if, if you look at, at St. Joseph's titles, many of his wonderful titles in the litany of St. Joseph, he's called the pillar of families. I mean, a pillar is a foundation, right? If you don't have that, everything collapses. He's called the glory of domestic life. Wouldn't it be great if more men, they could say that, you know, my father or if a, a woman could say, my husband is the glory of our domestic home. That would be pretty extraordinary, right? Um, and so we, we can look to him to shore things up and get back to uh, doing things the, in the right way. And even in the church, you know, I take no delight in saying this, of course, but we've got a lot of division in the church. We've got a lot of confusion in the church. And uh, we need, you know, bishops and priests who are strong in their manhood, leaders, and, and willing to fight off these wolves that are attacking us. And I think that for myself and my brother priests, we too need to look to St. Joseph to know how to be those who protect the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, and I tell you, the Holy Spirit is doing something right now with St. Joseph across the globe to bring our attention to him in an extraordinary way. Amen. Preach it, Father. Well, these titles that the church has given St. Joseph through the centuries, you've entitled your conversation with me today and with us, Terror of Demons. Let's talk about that title and the three attributes that in your recent book on St. Joseph, you identify three attributes of St. Joseph that we can aspire to and that really cause Satan and his demons to, to be fearful. Uh, St. Joseph's chastity, his humility, and his authority. Talk about the title and about these particular attributes of this great saint. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I came up with the title for this talk, Terror of Demons, that's my favorite title for St. Joseph, because to me, it's like the the money title, the, the heavyweight title, it's like, oh, bring on the big guns on the battlefield, you know, the mighty terror of demons. And a lot of people sometimes don't maybe see St. Joseph in that way because he was quiet. He was, you know, in the background. But that's, that shows his greatness because his intercessory ability with Jesus Christ is extraordinary. There's only one person who has it greater, and that's Our Lady, of course, as, as the mother of our Savior. And remember, when the Blessed Virgin Mary asks Jesus to do something, he hears it as coming from his dear mother. And so he responds, and he responds abundantly. Like when she simply said, son, they have no wine. Boom, you got wine. You got a lot of wine. Well, with St. Joseph, when he asks our Lord for something, consider it done. Well, the devil knows that, and he's terrified of the power that St. Joseph has before the throne of God. And he's also terrified of those three attributes that, that you mentioned. And we need these today in our times because the first is that chastity, purity. 
Brother, you know as well as I do, and all the men watching this, that we live in a pornographic, filthy, perverse time where there is so much of this around that it's destroying the hearts of men. Uh, it's destroying marriages. What, what is the latest statistic? I think it's 52% of marriages today end in divorce. I mean, that is horrific to think about. And young boys by the age of 11 are being exposed to hardcore pornography today. We have got to get back to purity. And what a greater man to look to than the man who lived with the most beautiful woman who ever walked on this planet, the Immaculate Virgin. He's a model of purity, and so he can help us in that. And then you've got his humility. You know, today, uh, you know, oftentimes people want a trophy for everything that they do on a daily basis. They want a merit badge for their achievements. Well, nothing wrong, you know, with being acknowledged for the work you've done. But think about St. Joseph. He, he didn't get anything while he, when he walked on this earth. But he was that humble husband and father who got the job done. It was thanks to him that his son, you know, our Savior, not his biological son, of course, we know that, but his son and, and, and his wife, he was able to help them get to Calvary so that they, you know, as the new Adam and new Eve, could, could do the work of salvation for the world. And so that's what men need to look to today. Get the job done. You don't need the honors and the, you know, the six fi figures necessarily, although there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but get the job done in a humble way. And then the authority. Uh, and when we say that about St. Joseph and men in general, we don't mean some overpowering ogre, you know, man in the house, you know, commanding everybody what to do. No, of course not. We're talking about humble servant leadership, sacrificial leadership. When if, if a wife and a mother and children see that the man is willing to die to work with the sweat of his brow for the good of others. That brings about so much good fruit in the family, in society, in a parish, in a diocese, in the whole church. And so St. Joseph, he's our go-to guy right now for everything that we need. So that's, we want these qualities. We, we see in St. Joseph the kind of husband, the kind of father that we want to be. Talk about consecration to St. Joseph. You've written this wonderful new book on consecration to St. Joseph. Talk about what that means and how we as men um, can pursue that. What, what can we do to consecrate ourselves to St. Joseph? Yeah, you know, about four years ago when I, I had this inspiration to uh, put this book together, you know, I, I kind of was thinking to myself, well, look at our Lord, Jesus. He's the God-man. Um, but he got to that manhood part by growing up, you know, in, in this family with Mary as his mother, Joseph as his father, and he himself, Jesus, looked to St. Joseph. Um, and it says that our Lord grew in wisdom and stature before God and man under the watchful care of Mary and Joseph. Well, if Jesus entrusted himself, which is another way of saying consecration, to St. Joseph, what about us? I mean, we need to do this too, because you ever hear that, that old adage, that axiom, like father, like son? We're going to imitate our father. And many of us, you know, have had good fathers, but many of us have not. And we, or we've seen the weaknesses of our father or, or father figures in the world. Well, we have the perfect father to imitate in St. Joseph. And so what I did is I spent three years putting this book together to give guys a program uh, and women and children as well, of course, a program of getting to know St. Joseph, because a lot of people don't know him. They're like, yeah, who is he actually? I, I see paintings of him. He looks like a 95-year-old guy in the background. I, you know, I never thought much of him. Well, 
is that really Joseph? Is that really what the church teaches? And why is he depicted like that oftentimes? And was he a widow? Because sometimes people think he was a widow and previously married with other children. And so we get to the heart of getting rid of the falsehoods and getting to the kernel of who he really is with what the popes have said, saints, mystics, what apparitions he's appeared in, that kind of good stuff. And by the time you do the program, it's a 33-day program, you know him and you want to be like him. You want to be another Joseph. No matter what your vocation is, you can be another Joseph. And so you entrust yourself, you consecrate yourself to him, and it's changing lives. The feedback from it is extraordinary. And um, even bishops have been telling me, this is what I need for my diocese. And so God be praised. Now is the time of St. Joseph. And I think the Holy Spirit, I think our Lord, I think our Lady is saying, go to Joseph right now and really and truly get to know him, get to love him, and consecrate yourself entirely to him. Father Calloway, we are so blessed to have you joining us today in this conference, speaking this powerful message about this powerful saint. Thank you for the work you're doing across the country and the world. Thank you for um, the time you've given us today. And, uh, and men, let's go to St. Joseph. Let's, let's learn about this great saint. Let's begin to have a relationship with him in prayer. Let's, let's get Father Calloway's book and begin as men in our parishes and in small groups to study that book, to learn more about St. Joseph, and to consecrate ourselves to this great saint so that we too can become terror of demons. Father Calloway, thank you. God bless you and continue your wonderful ministry among all of us. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, brother. God bless you too. Men, for our last speaker today, I'm so excited to introduce our own bishop here in the Diocese of Columbus, Bishop Robert Brennan. For those of you that are listening from outside our diocese, this is a bishop that seems to be everywhere all at once. If I didn't know, I'd think he was uh, bi-locating because he appears at every parish, every school. He is everywhere in our diocese. He is on fire with the love of Christ. He is so passionate about our church and rebuilding our church here in America. He joined our diocese back in 2019. We love him and we're excited to introduce him to all of you today. He's gonna to share some thoughts and remarks that kind of reflect on the other speakers' um, comments, but he's really gonna help us dive a little deeper also into the life of St. Joseph. So without further ado, our bishop here in the Diocese of Columbus, Bishop Robert Brennan. Good morning and thank you for being with us today for our men's conference. I really wish we could be together. I had looked forward to this for a long time. I looked forward in anticipation last year and absolutely loved it. And as soon as it was over, I was looking forward to this year's conference. I wish we could be together, but I'm glad that we could in some way, shape or form be connected, that we could be connected in small groups. Hopefully a number of you are listening in your parishes or nearby parishes, and that we could all be united through this video experience. I wanna say thank you to Devin for your great and inspirational talk and for the rich use of biblical imagery to awaken in us that sense of our identity and of our call to be part of God's plan of salvation. And it was so well done. 
And Father Calloway, I want to thank you for your book, for the consecration to St. Joseph and um, for sharing with us, especially the image of Joseph as the terror of demons. How apropos in today's world. And it becomes even more and more so by the day. So thanks to both of you. Thanks to all the organizers, to everybody who put this day together. It was a lot of extra work this year. And thanks to you. Thanks for giving God your time today. Because as I always say, time given to God is time not lost, but time transformed. You made this a priority, which says an awful lot about you, about your values, and about how you want to live your life. So thank you, one and all. Last year, you gave me the opportunity to speak to you, and I spoke about that undivided heart. I spoke about some of the biblical heroes who had divided hearts, who accomplished great things, but sometimes with a divided heart that caused great harm. I brought us around to the image that God uses, not of a king, but of a shepherd, one who cares, the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. How appropriate then that we're focusing today on St. Joseph. Our themes were chosen well before Pope Francis named this the year of St. Joseph. And so it really seems to have all come together in the right way. But as we look to St. Joseph, there we have the perfect image of a pure heart, certainly of a chaste heart, but a heart that was totally focused on doing the will of God. A heart that was fully attentive to the voice of God, fully attentive to where God may be leading him, and then fully willing to live his life, to protect his family, to guide his family according to that will of God. I think of Jesus growing up and certainly his inner disposition toward doing the will of the Father. But between Mary and Joseph, how often he must have heard that phrase, doing the will of the Father. That was just so much a part of their household. I think of Joseph. Imagine Joseph and the, in the beginning and, and in his relationship with Mary. I'm sure that Joseph and Mary had great hopes and great dreams as they looked to a future together. And yet Joseph had that dream. He found out that Mary was expecting the child and he had the dream where the angel woke him up in the middle of the night and said, Joseph, do not be afraid. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for it is by the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived. Joseph awoke and did as the angel said. Fast forward a little. <clears throat> I'm sure it wasn't in their plans to make a trip to Bethlehem, but Interesting how the circumstances of the time, the edicts of the Roman Empire, the situation that they were in their own poverty, brought them into Bethlehem just at the time that Mary was to give birth. This is not how Joseph dreamed it would be, right? I'm sure he wanted to provide the best. And yet, he made do under the circumstances and he ended up doing the will of the Father. Think of his dreams later on. Joseph, he had the dream, get up, get out of town, 
Herod is searching for your child. He goes to Egypt. He has another dream. Good. Herod has died. Time to return. Starts to make the trip. Has another dream. Joseph, don't go that way. Herod's son is even worse than he is. So I think if I were Joseph, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. But he was attentive. Always, always attentive with a pure heart. His first reaction wasn't, what's in it for me? Or what's it going to cost me? His reaction was, what is God asking me to do? And how is God asking me to take care of my family? This is the heart that you and I desire in our roles as men, in our roles as fathers of families, in our roles as men in the community, as a role as a priest and a bishop, with that pure heart, that undivided heart, always attentive to the voice of the Father, we're ready to be protectors of our family, just like Joseph was of his. This conference today was a chance for us to reflect on that attentiveness, on where God is working in our lives and calling us to great things, as he did with Joseph. Not according to our dreams and plans, it's important to have those, but to be able to be nimble, to be ready, to move along with where God is asking us to adjust so that God's great plan of our salvation, of our fullness of life, might be achieved. You know, Father Calloway gives us that book with the entrustment to St. Joseph. When we entrust ourselves to Joseph and to Mary, we are doing exactly what God chose to do, right? God chose to empty himself, being come, becoming human, taking on human form, being born as a little child, fully entrusted to Mary and Joseph. We're doing the same thing. In his act of entrustment, he has us go, Father Calloway has us go to the litany of St. Joseph. And I wanna share a couple of those images with you at this moment. In the Litany to St. Joseph, we have several tropes. We have the call to mercy, and then there are two sets of tropes which are very particular to St. Joseph. My ask of you, my homework, if you will, is to take a look at this Litany of St. Joseph and focus on the second two, the third and the fourth sets of tropes, and see if the Lord isn't speaking to you. As we call these attributes to Joseph, is God asking you to take them for yourself? Joseph most just. Joseph most chaste. Joseph most prudent. Joseph most courageous. Joseph most obedient. Joseph most faithful. Mirror of patience, lover of poverty, model of workmen, glory of domestic life, guardian of virgins, pillar of families, comfort of the afflicted, hope of the sick, patron of the dying, terror of demons, protector of the Holy Church. Indeed, what God asks of Joseph, God is asking of you and me. Do we have the courage to do it? Do we have the attentiveness to hear the promptings of God as he leads us to be protectors of our families, protectors 
of our community, protectors of the family in general, and protectors of the church. God bless you. Thank you for your attentive hearts. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for turning to the Lord. Together, as we listen closely to the voice of the Lord, God will accomplish great things through each and every one of us. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless all of you and all your families, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Did you know that your body has a theology? Here's a hard word to spell, concupiscence. Concupiscence is the natural desire for something good. But over the years, its meaning has been understood to have a disordered desire for something, possibly leading to destructive action. One way to describe this is lust. To lust after someone is to see them as an object to use for one's pleasure. We suffer the effects of original sin. What we think is good for us often isn't, or what we desire is in a selfish, me-first kind of way. But we're designed to be fulfilled by the good, the true, and the beautiful. And through the theology of the body, St. John Paul II shows us how to overcome lust with God's grace, self-mastery, self-sacrifice, and willing the good of others. I'm Clarissa Chichioko for Creative Catholic Works. For more TOB Minutes, you can find us at creativecatholicworks.org. May Christ give you enough tears to keep you warm, human, sensitive. Enough humor to laugh at yourself rather than others. Enough setbacks to keep you humble. Enough sun to brighten your vision. Enough pain and suffering to make you more dependent and less independent. Enough goodness to be called a person of integrity. Enough accomplishments to keep you confident and eager. Enough patience to teach you the virtue of waiting. Enough discipline to be moderate in eating and drinking. Enough silence in your life that you become more prayerful. Enough poverty of spirit to be able to share and enrich others. Enough insight in how you see God, but also how God sees you. Enough friends to give you life, strength, and support. Enough grief and sorrow to make you both sensitive and loving. Enough gain to satisfy your wanting. Enough crosses to carry to become a Simon of Cyrene or a Veronica. Enough hope to teach you to trust in God. Enough care to comfort the disturbed, but also disturb the comfortable. Enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. Enough strength from your faith, family, and friends to support you. Enough warm and wonderful memories to give you comfort. Enough divine and human qualities to forgive oneself and forgive others. Enough time to repent. Enough time and space to allow God to personally love you. Enough common sense for you to make healthy decisions. Enough determination to make each day better than yesterday. Enough hellos and welcomes to get you through your final goodbye. Enough perseverance to continue to become what I know I should be. Enough idealism to work out and live out the role model of Jesus Christ in my life. Amen. One year after I graduated Catholic High School, I eloped to Las Vegas, Nevada. My husband was not Catholic, and at the time I didn't really think that it really mattered 
which church we went to because we all love God and we all love Jesus. And that was the start of my journey out of the Catholic Church, where I remained out of the Catholic Church for over 30 years. When I um, started to read the Bible, I could see that our Catholic faith is steeped in Scripture. I could see some of the sacraments in Scripture. I could see some of the liturgy in Scripture. I learned that the Catholic Church was started by Jesus Christ who gave the authority to Peter and it has continued in succession down to the present day. And that was the start of my journey home to the Catholic Church. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today.